Hey comrades, this is Heart of a Heartless World, and this month we have an extra episode for you. You're welcome. This is a continuation from the Jorg Rieger episode earlier this month. Um, there was so much good stuff packed into the Q&A session, and then Jorg actually showed up in New York to meet with some DSA folks to uh, just keep the conversation going. There was too much good stuff not to give you all a little taste. So here is an extra episode where Jorg answers some of our top questions about theology, the capitalist scene, and how to live into the solidarity required to change the world. Enjoy. Our first question here for the panel, this is from Stephen Rizzo, and he describes how much of the language that we use to critique capitalism, for example, idolatry, heresy, fetishism, is pulled from the very system of capitalism and colonialism that it's trying to critique. So is it appropriate to use this language? And if so, how do we do so without adopting the postures of those dominant systems? Yeah, Steve, I want to uh, affirm what you said. I, I do believe that the language of fetishism, there's a, a strong debate right now on the fact that the word emerges in the colonial context. Uh, I can speak with some authority here because the word comes from a Portuguese word. So we, I'm a Portuguese speaker from Brazil, so we gave this word to the universe. So the Portuguese, when they arrived in the west coast of Africa, they identified uh, local customs with the word feitiço, which means spell. Uh, so... And eventually that word entered into the cultural imaginary in Europe, was developed by Marx, later Freud, and it entered sort of the the, uh, the vocabulary of critical theory, right, as this thing that presents itself in a more or less fake way, right? It's a misleading appearance. Um, and it, it appears, it reappears later on in the discourse uh, on the theological critique of capitalism by authors like Francine Kalemert. Uh, these are all sort of my people, my kind of mentors into theology there. Um, so I think it's important for us to caution against uh, the language of fetishism and its colonial roots. Uh, but I personally believe that there's something about the, the language of uh, the idolatry critique that is important, precisely because it is a way of talking about um, theological ideas and religion, uh, not in opposition to uh, atheism, as Jorg was saying in the beginning here, the Christians were accused of being atheists. So uh, the language of idolatry and idolatry critique uh, presents the, the thought of, of theology not as opposing the no God, but opposing the fake and false image of God which is a, an image of the divine that engenders suffering and is pleased with human suffering. I uh, personally, uh, Stephen, I'm not willing to let go of that insight because I think it's a fundamental critical insight of theology that makes theology truly critical, including of itself. Right? It makes theology self-conscious, self-critical, and I cannot get rid of that. I think that's a fundamental aspect of, of, of the Christian faith, and it's one fundamental uh, dimensions of the liberating dimensions of the faith, precisely because it's it's constantly re, redoing itself um, and honest to itself. And, and maybe following up on this, uh, I, I would say uh, there is ways of, of using uh, even some of, uh, well, uh, you know, the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. 
sometimes you need the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. And so you subvert uh, by using some of these tools, the tools themselves, I, I would add to that, you know, could also read that via Homi Baba and mimicry and those kinds of things, sort of post-colonial practices. Uh, but what I would add uh, to respond to your question, Stephen, uh, you know, other uh, strategies, um, I, in 2009, right coming out of the Great Recession, uh, I wrote this book, um, No Rising Tide, Theology, Economics, and the Future. And uh, my basic concern then was uh, to think about capitalism as religion um, in a way that economists had talked about economics as religion. And what the economists had talked about was uh, that top economists now uh, do not have to crunch numbers anymore. They just keep big ideas before people. Uh, and so by doing that, basically, uh, you know, they, they lead people forward. Uh, but that was what uh, economists then had said is religion. Um, that is religion, uh, but it's not the only thing. Uh, so I think religion becomes more interesting when it's not big ideas, but it is developed out of the struggles on the ground. Uh, somebody uh, in, in a comment a minute ago uh, mentioned uh, you know, Eugene McCarrier's book, um, uh, who is also critiquing some of these moves in capitalism, uh, it's just I think the solutions are different. Uh, I, I do not believe in theology as big ideas. I do not believe in uh, Aquinas and uh, all the other A's, Augustine, Athanasius, and whoever else having great ideas that will save us now. Uh, I think religion is something that has to grow out of the struggle uh, is something that constantly has to remind itself of this false religion of uh, ideas that basically functions as if uh, the uh, the uh, economic relationships on the ground don't matter. In other words, uh, that's true for socialism. Do not trust a socialist who does not talk about labor, who understand, who does not understand that socialism ultimately, like religion, has to grow out of uh, the lives of working people. Okay, our next question concerns the, the different ways that we try to bring about change. So whether we're talking about uh, party organizing or community development or mutual aid or something like that, one of the primary contrasts is between a hierarchical form of change and a more anarchistic form. Which methods do you find to be compatible with, um, you know, the vision that's outlined here in theology in the capitalist scene? This this is a great question. I, I think Jason should go first, though. I I, I really want to talk about that too, though. Next. Well, it's a fantastic question, uh, and we should do, of course, both. I mean, the the horizontalist anarchist mode works very well in some situations. And from a historical materialist perspective, there's nothing, there's no problem with hierarchy as such. It is the relations of production and reproduction uh, that obtain that allow for hierarchies to be established for very functional reasons. And there's nothing wrong about being functional. As Mao would say, we need to be red and expert. And these days, red, expert, and green. So some things you can do on an anarchist scale, you cannot rebuild an electrical grid on uh, with, as an anarchist cooperative uh, project. Now, the other part of this that, that plays into this whole debate is what communists were really good at. And communists basically understood that you can't have any kind of revolution in any sense of that term if you can't defend it. Why? Because the imperialists are coming for you. 
Uh, there's a there's a great ex, um, uh, uh, quotation from from the Irish revolutionary James Connolly that I can't do justice uh, to, but it's very appropriate in these moments of recent uh, mobilizations against uh, uh, the uh, sort of militarized police and its oligarchy in this country, where the the capitalists will kill you just for getting in the way of a day's profit. Imagine if you're coming for all of their profit. What do they do? And what we know what they do. This is uh, uh, the history of uh, how we get, in fact, how we get the word ecocide, right, which is tied to genocide. And we had to destroy the village in order to save it, which was as true for the American uh, major in the Tet Offensive in February 1968 as it was, say, for Washington President Washington sending, uh, uh, then General Washington, I should say, sending Sullivan into upstate New York to exterminate and burn to the ground every single Iroquois uh, settlement in in where around where I live in Binghamton, New York. So this 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 question of what to do has to involve both, but it's very very thorny when the credo of the imperialists is, you know, we're going to destroy you. And you can see this in the history of a lot of socialist experiments, not least the Soviet Union. And it's easy, it's easy 70 years later to be a Bukharanite. Uh, but the fact was they were never going to be able to defeat the Nazis or the Germans uh, um, without on, on the basis of um, a lot of peasant communes. That just was never going to happen. So this is a very thorny and difficult um, uh, question to come about. And I think we just have to acknowledge that both have strengths and for a democratic revolutionary and internationalist movement, we're going to have to balance off these moments because the question of transition is everything. I, I always learn listening to you, Jay, uh, Jason. So, so thank you, uh, and and also Philippe. Um, I, I I want to approach it a little bit differently based on what I just said, uh, namely uh, this idea that religion is basically big ideas, um, and then uh, you know the question is always uh, religion and politics. How are those two connected? Uh, and uh, you know a lot of people of faith and theologians are happy when they finally get faith people and theologians to realize there's a connection of, of faith and politics. But then the assumption is usually uh, when you talk politics, you need a party, a political party, uh, and. Um, there is something that's neglected here, right? I mean, let's assume uh, religion is not just big ideas, but practices, ways of life. Let's assume that uh, politics is maybe bigger than parties. Uh, but what's the third? Uh, well, uh, economic relationships. Uh, so uh, we oftentimes talk about political democracy, uh, but can we talk about religious democracy? That's one question. And can we talk about economic democracy? So the foundation of socialism, as I see it, uh, is not a party. It's not a party system, political party, uh, but it is actually economic democracy, uh, working people working together. Uh, and ultimately, that takes us back to worker cooperatives. It's not even just a labor struggle where workers always have to reassert themselves, but it is a different way of collaborating, building wealth, uh, productive and, and reproductive labor here. Uh, that's, of course, for human communities but you can extend that and think about human and non-human communities collaborating together because it's it's all a big collaboration so if if you put this at the foundation the question is not uh you know you need party or anarchism uh, but 
how do you actually work together? Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, it's it's a network of cooperatives. It's not just one cooperative here and one there, but uh, a global system where uh, you have these cooperatives working cooperatively uh, with all the, the struggles and tensions uh, that brings. I'm I'm not not romantic about this, uh, but I'm I'm seriously suggesting that uh, we make a mistake, and this is a common mistake, I think. Uh, in, in socialist circles when we think uh, socialism is basically about yet another political party. Now, not that that's not part of it. Uh, of course, uh, we have to talk about what they could look like. Uh, we also have to talk about a lot of the shortcomings uh, of, of these systems. Uh, I think there's a lot too many of them, really. Uh, but we, we have to ground this somewhere else. And I think that's what's too often forgotten. And this is why, ultimately, um, you know, I said it in the very beginning, uh, I, I'm more and more talking about labor, productive and reproductive as this ultimate concern thing, matter of life and death, um, at the core of, of pretty much everything, in, including your images of God. Uh, I, I'm someone who would, wouldn't kind of select the option between anarchism or the other from the get-go, because I, I do believe that there would be different struggles that would require different modes of mobilization. So that would be like my way of beginning that conversation. It depends. So tell me the struggle. And I think out of that struggle, you would need that different modes of coalition will emerge out of the struggle. So uh, I understand that there's a lot of historical reasons for dispute there, but I also think that some of those disputes emerged because people were struggling from different angles. And, and I, I, I would begin there. It depends. If you're building a tenant union, right, to address uh, issues of housing in your neighborhood, that will inform the type of leadership and social structures and hierarchies or not that you will have in the group. If you're trying to mobilize a union, uh, like our, our students here at Boston University are doing mobilizing a union, a graduate student union, uh, that would require a different mode of organization, I believe, uh, in order to get the attention of, you know, the president of the university, the trustees, and so on and so forth. So you see, different structures and different strategies would require different forms of mobilization. For this next question, Jorg, could you help us to translate class, race, and economics into our practical religious spaces? It's you know, one thing to have a discussion or read a book on these topics, but how does it end up getting into our pews and synagogues and mosques? What advice would you have for religious leaders who are trying to bring about this uh, consciousness about class and economics and the capitalist scene? Uh, well, two things. First of all, the class analysis thing really helps you um, not to demonize other people. So, uh, you know, it ends demonizing the wealthy, you know, or some putting out individual people who have a lot of money. Yes, this is the problem. Uh, in fact, you know, if somebody's a CEO of a corporation and, and they decide tomorrow that they don't want to be as uh, CEO-like, uh, somebody else will be the CEO and uh, they will be replaced. So, so, so simply, uh, you know, the, the wealthy as such are, are not even individuals. Uh, they're not the problem. So once you realize that there's a problem with these structures, you know, uh, the wealthy themselves might realize how they're playing into this. And I think a lot of wealthy people know it. Uh, they just don't think they have any options. And so the question is, well, what might some of your options be? 
very practically, one thing that we're doing through the Women Cook Program is, um, you know, we're, we're not anti-business. We're actually very interested in cooperative, worker cooperative businesses, uh, where all of a sudden, you're, you're, uh, if labor exploitation of labor is the foundation, uh, you're not thinking about how do you actually work with less exploitation or with no exploitation. And all of a sudden, a lot of this turns around uh, in all kinds of interesting ways. So, so there's ways, uh, I mean, I'm not saying this will be easy, but there's ways of, of really turning the system and bringing along uh, some people that have not only privilege, but also power. Uh, during the Occupy Wall Street times, uh, you, you may know that there was this, uh, what was it, a Tumblr site where people held up signs uh, saying, uh, I'm a member of the 99% and had a little story. There was another Tumblr site that uh, said, I'm a member of the 1% and I stand with the 99%. And people also had their little story. That might still be up, I don't know. Um, but uh, translate that into racism. Uh, if you're thinking about, you know, the way we oftentimes approach racism is precisely, I'm a white person who has this tremendous privilege, which I do, right? Um, but by not distinguishing between privilege and power, I'm basically assuming that this white privilege now is all I have to ever address. Uh, and then you basically stuck there. You either feel bad about it or you try to be less privileged. You try to divest yourself of what little privilege you have and it doesn't work. And um, so it gets very complicated. But if you realize uh, you have this privilege, but you don't have the power, uh, then you can say, well, maybe I need to do something about that. Uh, and so, so then you can actually uh, join a liberation movement in very, with di very different premises. Kianga Yamata Taylor, uh, in her book From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, uh, makes a distinction between allyship and solidarity. And she says, allyship is not enough. Uh, solidarity uh, is this material foundation I briefly talked about. It's a way of realizing you actually have something in common. This is not appropriation or trying to say, oh, I'm just as oppressed as everybody else, but to say, maybe what's killing you is killing me. Uh, and now I can use my privilege differently. In other words, uh, it's not about letting anybody off the hook. So this is not about letting white privilege off the hook and say, well, since you don't have so much power, it's not that bad. Uh, but it's a different way of looking at it. It's a different way of dealing with it to say, you have this white privilege or take male privilege, take straight privilege, all that stuff. Um, you have it, you have to deal with it, but you deal with it by actually joining the revolution rather than constantly trying to make yourself a better person or something like that. Jord, can you explain the role of ecology in this uh, struggle and describe how an ecological lens helps us to understand our place theologically? Uh, well, let me start with the ecology piece. Uh, as, as I said in the beginning, uh, what ties it together is really uh, what exploits people is what exploits the planet and vice versa. Yeah. So, so ecology then is not simply a matter of being nicer to nature or, you know, Methodists talk about creation care, uh, but it's really trying to figure out what it is that actually is happening here. Uh, one, one quick number from the book is... Uh, if you're worried about CO2 emissions, which are uh, sort of at the basis of climate change, 71% uh, of CO2 emissions are produced by the interest of 100 corporations. 71% of global CO2 emissions are produced by the economic interest of 100 corporations. That, that's a pretty interesting number, right? 
So, so there's a class analysis that actually helps with ecology also. And of course, we talk about extraction uh, and that sort of thing, again, in terms of that economic analysis. Um, but the next thing there is, uh, you know, you think about agency. So we think, well, we have to save nature. Um, well, what if non-human nature, right, other than human nature, this is politically correct term now, also has agency, and where, where would that be, right? Um, I saw the documentary recently where they're reintroducing beavers in the American West, they're building dams. Yeah. Uh, you may have seen this too, you know, uh, and, and thereby, uh, you know, restoring uh, some of the, the flow of water, you know, the, the retain, retaining of the water uh, and they're actually uh, you know already studying uh, and finding um, results that this might help address climate change so beavers in the american west now have an agency that's pretty amazing right i mean i also like beavers so that's great but uh, mm -hmm. uh, and of course uh, beavers is sort of the typical working class animal right i think of it this way so so that that's the ecology piece um, I mean, what we're doing at the Wendland Cook Program, uh, as, as KB was saying, uh, we're doing a lot. Uh, of course, this is the complication, right? So we work with labor. We work with religion and labor. Uh, that's not a, a great, easy alliance there, right, to begin with, right, bringing faith communities and labor together. Uh, we work with uh, worker cooperatives, I just mentioned that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we also work with socialists, uh, and unfortunately, that's yet another unhappy alliance because labor and socialism has its own problems, right? Labor and church has its own problems. So, so basically, <laughs> the three-legged stool uh, is, is not that easy to maintain. This is an Episcopal reference, by the way, <laughs> the three-legged stool. Um, this summer, uh, we'll bring a few uh, labor people together, and KB is spearheading this in the city uh, to look at a new... Uh, what do we call it? Spirit and Solidarity Summer. Uh, this will be a new uh, organizing thing, uh, labor organizing with religion. Uh, and I'm my own interest here is to bring some of the, the worker pool of people together. So, so we're, we're building some of this thing. And if you're interested, I mean, talk to KB. She, she's sort of at the heart of a lot of this. Uh, the real organizing thing. By the way, this is how I test myself. Uh, if, if what I'm saying actually rings a bell uh, with people like you on the grassroots. Uh, I think maybe I got something, right? Uh, and and why, why this is so interesting is not me teaching you all the things I, I know and that you never thought of. of. Uh, in, in fact, fact all I'm doing is sort of bring these things sort of into the conversation at a theological level. I mean, we, we could also talk a lot more theological talking heads, you know, Tillich and all the names, you know, Bart and all the way to the present, you know, Catherine Tanner, you name it. Uh, but that's the conversation uh, where, where I can be helpful. Uh, a lot of it resonates already. So, so the great thing is this is already happening. And that's the eschatology piece. You are one of the key features of religion is its use of eschatology, you know, proclaiming some sort of vision of hope for the way the future will play out for humans and for reality. What role does eschatology play for you? Uh, if eschatology is just something that happens at the end of time, um, well, who knows, you know, it may or may not happen. Uh, that's, by the way, capitalism too, right? The idea um, that, uh, you know, uh, in the end, capitalism benefits everybody. This is the capitalist idea. The capitalist idea is not greed, rich people getting richer, but a rising tide. Oh, so that's capitalist eschatology. Uh, the question is, is, is it happening? Is it, uh, you know, and... Uh, 
I mean, I could go on and on here uh, because this is uh, a, an old argument where economics very strangely turns into a religion, a bad religion. This is not good religion here, uh, where uh, it's basically just pie in the sky stuff and, and false. I'm Ben Micellis uh, from the ideas that, that don't ever hit the ground. So, so eschatology is not that. On the other hand, uh, the liberal thing about realized eschatology, uh, I you know I was almost about to tell an Episcopal joke. I I, I can't do that. I'm a Methodist, <laughs> but uh, uh, basically this idea of realized eschatology, uh, sort of the typical liberal, liberal middle class bourgeois idea. idea. Life is actually pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm for the imminent. I I don't need the transcendent. That's sort of for the conservatives. We have the imminent. We're all imminent and imminent and blah blah blah. Uh, that doesn't help either because uh, life for a lot of people is pretty shitty, you know. Uh, and so this realized eschatology things. Like, well, you know, here I am, you know. Um, what's that old joke? It doesn't have to be an Episcopalian joke, but uh, it's sort of a dominant religion. Jesus is born, uh, you know, in the year zero, uh, and he's born. Looks around and says, "Hey, this is not bad." <laughs> that's the incarnation. Uh, that's uh, well. That's your humanity. This is great. This feels good. You know. Let's, let's see what we can do with that. Uh, that that ignores the fact that life is actually pretty hard for a lot of people. And so, um, in the book, in the in the second chapter, I make this distinction between transcendence and imminence, and say the liberal imminence doesn't really help because it identifies the status quo in imminence. Um, if you think about the manger in terms of not, hey, this is pretty good, but as the place where God is born in a place of struggle. That's a much better way of thinking about imminence. But that's imminence one and imminence two. They're not identical. Uh, and the difference between imminence one and imminence two is transcendence. So imminence two, the major imminence actually transcends the status quo imminence, right? Uh, and that's where the liberals usually don't go. Uh, they don't really go uh, in this idea that God somehow takes the side of the struggle, struggling, working people. God is everywhere. I mean, once you do your class analysis and all you come up with is to say God is everywhere, maybe uh, you haven't quite done that homework yet and you haven't quite done your eschatology yet either because, um, I mean, God, God is not on the side, side of the oppressors. God is not on the side of the abusers, you know. Uh, of course, you know, God's working towards transforming them. That's good. But that's eschatology again, because it's not happening just yet. So in other words, uh, it's a lot more material, but it's still the, um, it's here and not yet here. Jörg, you talk a lot about solidarity, and you make a distinction between uh, deep solidarity and something that's more shallow and, and surface level. Can you expand on what that means and help us to uh, really understand the importance of deep solidarity? Uh, thank you. That that's that is a really important question. I mean, let, let's let's be very clear. These uh, yeah, call them shallow solidarities or uh, I mean, dangerous right wing solidarities are extremely powerful. I mean, we've we've seen it in history. We're seeing it every day right now. Uh, so keep in mind when we say solidarity, uh, the right wing has a solidarity project also. Uh, and of course, the solidarity is such a degree that it helps you win elections, hold political power. So, so that, that should not be forgotten. Uh, of course, all that uh, is, is also a little side commentary on, on all this hand-wringing about individualism. People, oh, we're so individual. Well, individualism is 
the lion. It's the lie of the powerful that want to communicate to people, oh, you're so individualistic, uh, while, while covering up uh, the fact that we're all connected. Um, but I think this is sort of my, my own feeling about it. Uh, once you see these false solidarities, you see how powerful they are. And it's very frustrating too. So it's, it, eats, it eats you up. Uh, I mean, this whole white supremacy thing uh, really eats me up in, in so many ways. Um, but how do you fight it, right? Uh, so, so that's where I think that other form of solidarity I'm talking about might actually be liberating instead of yet another moral that you must be in solidarity with the least of these. Uh, I mean, we've seen this kind of solidarity on, on the progressive side also. I mean, I'm thinking about the 1980s sort of Central America solidarity, which was a lot of times that well-meaning Americans putting themselves in solidarity with people in Central America, uh, which was better than nothing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to put that down, but uh, as the Latin Americans knew, um, if that's your solidarity, you can always walk away once you've had enough. Uh, and that, that also happened, right? <laughs> and maybe it's just human, but uh, that sort of solidarity doesn't go far enough. So, so for me, uh, in, in all of this, what I'm looking for is uh, where are some of these connections that are deeper than that? Uh, and um, those might not be easy to, to find, uh, but on the other hand, for me, that's sort of the only thing I find that keeps me not only alive, but, but actually productive. So I'm a theologian, um, you know, who is um, getting up there in age perhaps, but uh, I'm as excited about what I'm doing as I was in, in beginning, maybe even more so because I see some of this stuff happening. Mm -hmm. um, keep in mind too, I, I taught in, in Dallas, Texas for 22 years. Uh, and when we went there in 1994, people said, well, you want to go to Dallas, Texas? And we said, well, you know, I'm, I'm from the South. Uh, I'm from the South in Germany, but uh, there, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities. I mean, they think of us as fools and idiots and uh, we can't even speak right, you know. And uh, so for me, speaking English was always an easier foreign language than speaking high German, mm. not because I cannot speak high German, but because I resent it, right? Mm. So, so going to Dallas at, at one level was, well, these are my people. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, this is also very hard. Uh, and the way we survived in Dallas is, is pretty much by surrounding ourselves with people like you guys who are here tonight, right? Uh, with, with progressive people that you find everywhere. Uh, and with the kinds of people that realized uh, that that actually uh, there was a struggle. That includes now, this is the, the racial uh, story here also, where you think about, I mean, I, I was a very young professor. In the second year of being a professor, I was invited to the leadership of the SCLC in Dallas. Well, this, this, is, this is a great honor. You know, I, I didn't know what I was doing really, but uh, on the other hand, uh, just being invited to that and, and then being with people who are very different from sort of my, my typical white liberal colleagues at the school I was teaching at the time, uh, those were major steps for me. You know? uh, and uh, while that wasn't always without conflict, uh, those, those were the life-giving things that were uh, in so many ways uh, that made me what I am today. So, so, so in, in that sense, I mean, my invitation to you would simply be, I mean, you know this, but uh, just look exactly where you need to be looking and where, where, you find, where you find those connections that, I mean, you have them, but you just have to encourage each other. Uh, this is where I think, you know, 
the socialism conversations that we're having are oftentimes also uh, not quite there yet because, I mean, for a lot of people, uh, they think socialism is somehow a political option, which it is. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a political option. But um, if you simply uh, fight this fight in terms of political democracy and don't think about economic democracy, uh, you're missing something. Uh, because socialism ultimately is not just uh, here, we need a new political party uh, and a social uh, whatever uh, network. Uh, we, we need economic democracy uh, that goes back to the places. I mean, how can you live in a country that's product of democracy? You go to work tomorrow morning uh, and for eight hours, uh, you're, you're now in a dictatorship. It's uh, <laughs> weird, right? Uh, plus these eight hours shape you so deeply that uh, you don't really know what to do when you get out. Um, so all of that is simply to say, uh, find those solidarities. The next question here is about kind of a hot topic in uh, socialist spaces and in DSA there, um, the, the idea of mutual aid and distinguishing that from charity and trying to figure out what's the role of showing up for, for other people in this way. Is there a role for mutual aid in the practice of deep solidarity? That's a great concluding statement I can make here. That, that may be actually my, my last word because uh, if, if you think about all that we've talked about, so, so we've done the class analysis thing. Uh, the question is not just exploitation, but agency. So, so class then the question is what is this working class, the 99%, what are they contributing? What, what difference are they making? Uh, and there, I would say, you know, you, you always have to look at where the alternatives are helping out. So, 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 there's, so there's a great, a great book, book um, uh, Jessica gordon Imhart wrote a book, Collective Courage. Uh, I don't know, Over, you might know about it. Uh, this is a story about um, African-American traditions of mutual aid and cooperatives. It's, it's a really good book because what she does is, I mean, she tells the whole story. So, so this is... This, this is, is really, really uh, worth reading. reading. Um, part of that story, though, is uh, she talks about how this mutual aid, when it became dangerous, there was always pushback. So, so the, the fact, fact that, that a lot of these things are not here right now is not because they weren't sustainable or they weren't well thought out, but they were always destroyed. They, they, were, too, they were too dangerous. And so, so um, I think that's one, one way of measuring uh, what your mutual aid is doing, if it's actually getting dangerous or not, because mm -hmm. a lot of it isn't getting dangerous. So, so mutual aid as such, I'm not quite sure is, is really yet the remedy uh, to push back against capitalism. However, uh, if it is based on an analysis of capitalism, I think it could work that way. So if you said, I mean, for instance, uh, I mean, this is why we're more interested really in worker cooperatives. Um, one of our affiliates in Nashville is the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development, uh, which is doing a lot of work. Um, again, Rick Wolf, uh, Democracy at Work is one of his books talking about uh, what he calls worker self-directed enterprises, WSDEs. Um, those are more advanced forms of mutual aid, it seems to me, because they're really uh, restructuring labor as such. So if mutual aid is a way of actually restructuring labor relations, I think we're getting somewhere. But uh, if it isn't, uh, then it, it might not going, be going far enough. So it, it could be a model, uh, but it really has to ask itself, how is it addressing this fundamental question of the exploitation of labor relations, which is an exploitation of human relations and uh, ultimately an exploitation mm -hmm. of our relation with God. That's where the theologians come back in. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the mutual aid thing, I think, 
could probably be pushed a little bit. Uh, I mean, no, I am saying it, it needs to be pushed a little bit, uh, but uh, it might be a start. So, so in a way, I'm, I'm not saying it couldn't go there, but it, it needs to have a fairly clear analysis tied to it. And I think it needs to have a fairly clear theological analysis for those of us who are working with religion, uh, because I think religions and especially faith communities, established ones, are always tempted to sort of domesticate the more uh, the, the more radical approaches a bit. Uh, and why is that? Well, uh, because there's class struggle everywhere. Uh, there's class struggle even in the church. Uh, I mean, obviously, right? <laughs> um, there's things we cannot say in our churches because the donors won't allow us to say them, right? Uh, there are things we cannot say in NGOs and uh, 401, uh, 501, sorry, 501c3s, right? Uh, because uh, the way money flows. So, so even nonprofits are in some ways not the solution. Uh, and I think with this mutual aid thing, again, uh, if this is just a way of not having to step on anybody's toes, uh, it, it may be sort of a problem. But if, if it sort of takes us into a different logic that then dares to address some of the problems. I think it, it, could, it could do something. Uh, but but that's the, the ongoing thing of solidarity where we have to keep ourselves honest. Uh, and in the end, I mean, oh, the one thing about deep solidarity I did not say, but I need to say now in the conclusion. So please hang on for, for one more minute. Um, so diversity is absolutely essential for deep solidarity. Uh, and within, within that, that diversity, diversity, it is absolute essential, absolutely essential that you look at where the pressure is greatest. So simply me looking at deep solidarity and saying, well, I'm a working person too, is not enough. I need to learn what's going on in this struggle from those people who are in the midst of the struggle and uh, whose lives are ultimately endangered. That's, that's where I want. In other words, uh, of course, for me as a white man, this, this is looking, looking on, to people, to people who are totally different, different from I cannot do this work uh, just sort of for me doing my own analysis. So deep solidarity has to go uh, precisely uh, and be in conversation with those who are experiencing the greatest pressure. So so I, I probably should have said this already in my presentation, but uh, I think, um, and that's not a sappy sort of a trying to figure out who is most depressed thing. Uh, but it's simply a way of saying uh, we have to keep ourselves honest in this. Uh, and maybe just maybe this is where we find God, right? So, so that may be the place instead of uh, up there somewhere. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World. Get connected and learn more by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, religioussocialism.org.